Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. Today, we're talking about absolute immunity. What is it? Does it even exist? And what can Congress do in the face of the White House's assertions of it? Then we'll turn to discussion of one of the Supreme Court cases that have issued in the court's end-of-term flurry. We've got feds in Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. to talk about it. I'm joined here in Manhattan by Paul Fishman. He's well known to this podcast, and also he's the immediate past United States Attorney for the District of New Jersey. But before that, Paul was the mighty PADAG, the Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General, meaning he oversaw and got involved with nearly every issue at Maine Justice, which he managed to do by talking twice as fast as anyone else. Thanks for returning, Paul. Happy to be here, Harry, always. We're also joined by Talking Feds regular Matt Miller, who served as the Director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice. He's worked also in leadership positions in both the U.S. House and Senate and is now a partner at strategic advisory firm Vianovo. Matt, welcome. Thanks, Harry. And finally, we're extremely pleased to welcome to the program the Honorable Nancy Gertner. Judge Gertner is a former U.S. District Judge appointed to the federal bench of the U.S. District Court of Massachusetts in 1994. She retired from the bench in 2011 and now teaches at Harvard Law School and is a regular commentator on MSNBC. She's been a champion of individual rights and liberties throughout her career and was only the second woman, after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, to receive the Thurgood Marshall Award from the American Bar Association Section of Individual Rights and Responsibilities. Thank you so much, Judge, for joining us on Talking Feds. Good to be here. Okay, so let's dive in. The Judiciary Committee has just released the transcript of the closed-door testimony that Hope Hicks, who served as White House Communications Director in 2017 and 18, provided in her testimony earlier this week. There are many aspects of her testimony that bear discussion, but let's start first with the number 155. That's how many objections to questions were lodged by government counsel, three from the White House and one from the Department of Justice and her own, who accompanied Hicks and argued she was, quote, absolutely immune, close quote, for answering any question about or that came up for her service in government. So let's start first with this possibly newfangled concept of absolute immunity. Is that even a thing, Uh, Matt? You know, it's a thing in terms of uh, something administrations have claimed in the past, including the Obama administration, to prevent uh, White House staffers from being hauled before Congress and forced to ask questions about their time in the White House. It's not a thing in the sense that it's never been recognized by a court. In fact, the one time 
A court did take up the question in the Bush administration. A district judge in D.C. rejected the Bush White House's attempt to claim you know, absolute immunity to prevent, I think it was Harriet Myers and Karl Rove from, from testifying before. Yeah. And that, a, case a settled, that case settled out, right? So it didn't go to the Court of Appeals. But, yeah. but what, what is it even? What are they talking about? Anybody about when they say, uh, what, what puts the absolute in So absolute the immunity? idea is that because the, you know, a president cannot be subpoenaed to testify before Congress, that his aides have the same immunity of being forced to testify before Congress. But I think the what it really is in effect is a delaying tactic White House has used. Any aides, just anybody who works in the, the White House, you know, cafeteria? Sure, you wouldn't see a claim of uh, <laughs> someone in the White House cafeteria, although who knows if it was someone in the White House cafeteria who was advising the president, maybe they well, would. Well, maybe not, even, maybe not even that, Matt. I could easily see a situation with this White House in which, for example, somebody from the, maybe not the White House cafeteria, but some of the White House staff was subpoenaed to talk about the president's behavior in some way or something they overheard. Uh, or the just White as a House chauffeur. Right. The White House chauffeur. Well, right. I a, mean, who exactly is Hope Hicks so, so, that she should be absolutely well, immune? So, but, the, but, but Matt's right. It's not the, the words absolute immunity are sort of a weird way to couch it, right? Because immunity usually is a word that's used to describe liability as opposed to whether someone is available as a witness or not. We talk yeah. about it in the criminal context. We talk about it when people are sued, whether they have immunity from liability because they were acting in their official capacity in some ways. There are those, that's the ordinary course in which that term comes up in the legal world. What I think they mean is that there are certain people in the White House, at least the way they're describing it, who simply can't be asked anything about conversations they had with the president, or maybe things they saw the president doing. I don't really know what that means, but as Matt is exactly right, no court has ever said that that's true. What the courts have been much more careful to talk about is what the purpose of executive privilege actually is, and the terms under which it can be asserted, and when it can be overridden. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, Judge, if this came before you, how would you even approach the White House claim here? Well, absolute immunity is almost like saying anything I say in this room, you can't ask me about. Anything I said during the course of my, uh, you know, my tenure, you can't ask me about. And that simply makes no sense. It's one thing to say, I mean, as any trial lawyer would know, all the setup questions, who was in the room when this conversation took place? What time did it take place? This is saying that even sort of anodyne questions like that are not in the zone, that anything that takes place during their tenure in the room that you can't be asked about, which is ridiculous. I mean, I can't imagine that that would succeed. Executive privilege, like attorney-client privilege, like other privileges, is a question-by-question analysis. So the issue is not... I can't ask you about anything. It is, let me ask you about X. Does that fit within executive privilege? Let me ask you about Y. And I think that that's the real reason why Hicks was called before Congress. So there could be a record of questions. And when they go into court, when Congress goes into court, they can say, clearly, this question is not privileged in any way. Yeah. I mean, that's an excellent point. It's got a sort of a a dual function. It's for court also. But of course, if you read the transcript, which was released recently, you have this whole flurry, this litany of we object, we object, and it does seem ridiculous. Now, it would have been, I think, favorable. The committee would have liked something like that to actually occur on camera so you could see the sort of stiffness and over-the-top 
stance of the White House, but as it is, you just have it on paper, and it looks bad if you're reading it, but who, after all, is going to read it? Why did they agree to let Hicks be behind closed doors, and they did the same thing to Trump Jr.? Isn't the whole game here to try to have a sort of you know, public TV moment? It's a really great question. Look, I think the the purpose of congressional investigations, they serve two functions. One is fact-finding. Two is public illumination. And the fact-finding in this case is basically done. Hope Hicks has testified twice before Congress already to many of the same things she was asked about in her appearance this week. And of course, she's testified to Mueller, including about the things that she would not testify to before the House, which is her time in the White House. And we've already seen that testimony released in the Mueller report. So the idea that they were going to do any more fact-finding in this investigation, I, I think, is is kind of fanciful. What about fact-presenting? What What is the TV moment they wanted to get? That's my point about illumination. If this had been public, it would have been illuminating to, the, to people watching on television that you know the White House is making these ridiculous claims, preventing Hope Hicks from even answering questions about where her office was in the White House. Now, What Nadler's people will say is that this was strategic on their part. They wanted to get her in front of the committee, even behind closed doors. So the White House's very aggressive, I would say ridiculous claims could be set down in a transcript and they could use that transcript to then go to court for for their bigger target, which is their subpoena against Don McGahn. And so they want to go to the, the court and say, look, look at how ridiculous the White House's claims are about absolute immunity. And, and use that, because I don't think they care much about Hope Hicks. There's not much more that Hope Hicks right. has to say. And I think well, she is. I mean, she's really there. The only way she's really they, there they on they the plane. To do, they needed to do that question by question. That's why. They, had to, yeah. they needed sort of an, an object example of what they were concerned about. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't have made any sense. So I think that's the reason. They, and they do this closed door precisely because, you know, because they got nowhere. So this is actually an, an exercise that was useful for a subsequent court proceeding and not necessarily political theater. Can I say one more thing, though? I, I think you're right. It's useful to the subsequent court proceeding. But there's no reason why they couldn't have done this in public. She didn't have a right to not appear to answer questions about the campaign in public. So you know, the, the purpose of this absolute immunity claim, the political purpose by White Houses, is to keep aides from appearing in public testimony and having to just not take questions over and over again and look like they're hiding something. But she didn't have a right to, to, to not appear to, to talk about the campaign. So I don't know why they couldn't have achieved the same purpose that they did this week by having her come before a public hearing. Although she might have refused it. She was going to reject it and they were going to have to litigate it. You know, she didn't have any substantive reason on, on which to object appearing in public. That's the problem. There's no, there's no privilege claim she could have made. But Matt, that's never stopped them before. That's never stopped them before, right? The, the idea that yeah, you're totally right, she, as uh, you know, from the, you know the the issues involving her being on the plane and 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 whatever she learned during the campaign. There's a lot of stuff that she can't refuse to appear, but that hasn't stopped them from doing that and making right. the the Congress jump through the hoops of going to court to force people to show up. Um, and then and and so the advantage, I think, this time of having her do it this way is that they don't have to do it. They have to go to court twice. Right. At least she showed up this time. And so they first they first they'd have to go to court to get her to show up. Then they would have to go to court to ask her the questions. And it's it, it, well, no, it, but not it, only that, the, 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 the administration is banking on delay here. 
Well, that's uh, my question. And, and so, so, how, so how do we think this actually even plays out? So this is a strategic call. They go to court. They win. I, th- I mean, we can return to that, but I think everyone thinks that, the, that this absolute uh, immunity claim will be struck down. Now it's what? If we're lucky, if they're lucky, four months, six months away, the, they, they seek cert and the court doesn't grant it. Is there appetite anymore for now calling Hope Hicks to, uh, you know, put up her right hand in public? Or does at that point it just seem like, you know, old news? We thought they did that already and people have moved on to the campaign. I think unlikely, actually. I think that this was a ceremony to set up uh, exactly how ridiculous the scope of executive privilege is. And if there were a decision, for example, that came out of the Hicks case that says absolute immunity is not a thing, executive privilege, the, the meets and bounds of executive privileges are X, Y, and Z, they then, as you said before, can use it with respect to other witnesses. So you think the big quarry here is McGann? What do you, what do you think? I don't think that that's a great strategy for them, because first of all, McGann's a lawyer. So to the extent that there are privileges that apply to his conversations with the president, the things he thought about, the things he saw, Hope Hicks is not going to be an enormously terrific precedent for them. And if it turns out that what they're doing, as Matt described it, is trying to set up a precedent so that when McGahn gets called, he can't make the same claims, you still have the same problem that you identified, Harry, where we're months and months down the road, because if this gets litigated, it's not getting litigated till the fall, probably. Which raises a question that you're not raising in this, which is uh, whether or not the the Congress begins opening an impeachment inquiry. I just want to suggest that that's actually an interesting thing to do, if only to justify the need for expedition in the court. So it's your sense. I mean, we hear about this, Judge, and you would know best that it would somehow expedite things. I'm not aware of any legal reason that it would, but you just think the courts would be likely to, to saddle up and gallop away if they knew that, that the I word was actually in play? I think that's right. I think that, you know, the Nixon tape issue sort of skyrocketed to the Supreme Court. You're right. There's no absolute uh, rule that says if there's an impeachment inquiry, you have this amount of time to get to the Supreme Court or up through the appellate process. But clearly that would be helpful. That would be, I mean, that would be sort of adding another arrow to their quiver. I do wonder, Nancy, because, um, you know, the Nixon case, when it went to the Supreme Court, went in the context of a grand jury subpoena. And the urgency of a criminal investigation has has some real appeal, I think, to the courts, particularly when it's a grand jury subpoena that's effectively issued under the aegis of the court. And I think that that might have been sort of a real, a very serious reason why the court moved so quickly in that case. And so I'm not sure that, that the impeachment thing, there's much precedent for that in the impeachment context. Yeah. What play does Congress have then at this point? So they have with Hicks and McGahn, we think they've got to go through a round at least of litigation. And we have the, the somewhat tricky question of what things look like when the litigation is over, though I think everyone sees their their odds as, as quite good for prevailing. But what do they do in July of 2019 to move the ball forward? Not simply because, as Matt says, they, the facts are out there, but moving the ball forward at engaging the uh, American people in the seriousness of the conduct that they're looking into. Can they, should they call fact witnesses who didn't even work in the White House, like uh, Lewandowski or Felix Sater? Or what are the plays that are on the table? 
Uh, Matt, you probably have the best sense of this. Let me just back up and say that yeah. assumes that that they actually want to go that hard. Look, I yeah. I think there's a a fundamental issue here that you know we can we can sometimes miss the forest talking about the trees, and I think the forest is that this fight is basically over except for the shouting. It's been nine weeks wow. since the Mueller report was released. Uh, the House hasn't heard from a single fact witness until this week uh, with Hope Hicks, and she didn't talk to the most important facts that she's a witness for in the report. They or haven't any gone facts. To, the only fact she talked about was the weather. Yeah, that's right. They haven't gone to, to court to enforce a single subpoena yet after nine weeks. There is only 14 weeks left that the House is in session this year, and it's hard to see them doing, I think, an impeachment, you know, a serious impeachment effort in 2020 when the country is in the midst of deciding who the next president is. Right. So I, I think the president has basically won here, and he's won because you know there, there are a few things, but um, I, I think the Democrats made a big mistake at the beginning by deciding – to frame after the Mueller report was released, to frame their inquiry as a fact-finding mission. So you have one side here fighting, saying the president did nothing wrong, and you have the other side saying we're going to find out the facts. And in that type of a situation, the American people are left to to believe the question is kind of an open one. And I think a lot of them do believe, and I think that has taken the the wind out of any sails towards impeachment. They may eventually do it, but if they do it after after months of kind of dawdling and they do it after the emergence of zero new facts that they didn't have in April when the report was released, I think it's going to look more political than it would have had they just started from the get-go. I don't think it's completely true that they haven't done anything. There have been the third-party subpoenas against Deutsche Bank, Capital One. Uh, that has gone to court. Judge Meda issued a decision about that, making it quite clear that the that the uh, president had absolutely no grounds to uh, object to these subpoenas. So, I mean, I think that it, that's that's the House Oversight Committee. I think that they're moving forward on on that, and that's a different kind of fact finding. Fact finding not with respect to obstruction of justice. That's fact finding about Trump's financial activities. So, I think they're moving the ball with that. I agree with you, though. You know, it's interesting. I always thought that the question you that the you reason- agree with with Matt that it's basically game over here. No, I don't think it's a game over, I think that they should have moved differently with respect to obstruction. Um, and that at a certain point, if they haven't gotten anywhere, it would be, it looks like they're just running in place. But I do think that that they, I mean, for example, with respect to Mueller, I think there are interesting questions of Mueller, not, you know, what did you mean by what you wrote in this report? But I'd love to hear questions about Barr's interference in the Mueller report. Things that that you know that that was so the period of time between the time that Barr became Attorney General and the time that the Mueller report was issued, what effect did he have on the conclusions of that report? That would be, and and then to what degree is he taking his cues from the president? That that would be remarkable, though it's hard. It's wow, it's hard to see Bob Mueller ever talking about that. But Judge Fishman, what what is it? Game over? That's a, this is a pretty big. Uh, contention from Matt, are we, is it is Congressman checkmated? Nobody's ever really checkmated in Washington, I think, in lots of ways. Well, but I do time. Think, but, I do, but I do think that Matt's analysis is spot on. I mean, I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but as usual, he's very perceptive. And, and I do think that there, that what, what, I, what I feel like just the dialogue that people are engaged in has just deflated. 
It's and and people are not talking about it as much. Even people we know, people who are very very much anti-Trumpers, people who think that the president's conduct is awful and entirely criminal. People are just not. It's it's like everything else that happens with this administration. It happens. We're outraged, and then something else outrageous happens, and we move on. And and I think that's the risk. I'm on the fence here because there's a pincer move going on in Congress. So there are the you know the inquiries which are tracking the obstruction of justice. Uh, inquiry in the Mueller report. That's sort of one box. And then there are the other inquiries that are dealing with his financial activities, and they're dealing with the president's, tri- you know, the emoluments issue, the question not only of what happened before he became president, but those things that continued into his presidency. And those are the inquiries that were the subject of third-party bank uh, subpoenas, um, so I think that I don't think that it's game over, but there's certainly nothing fabulously revelatory about what's going on now. Let me, let me, uh, I don't let think me it's just game say, over. Uh, yeah, I, I think those pincer moves are important. I just don't see them. Any one of them is amounting to enough probably to impeach the president. I, look, I think there have been three big inflection points. The first was Mueller deciding not to say up or down whether whether the president committed a crime when I think it's pretty clear. He found evidence that the president did commit a crime. That was the first big one. It went against a move towards impeachment. The second was Barr's interference and public spin of the report that took even even the the damaging information in the report. It, it colored it in the public's view. And the third was this this decision by the Democrats not to come out right away and say, as I said earlier, that this report shows crimes. We need to hold the president accountable, but to say they need to pursue you know, some kind of fact-finding mission. And I don't see what the in big inflection point would be to change things the other way. I don't think Mueller's testimony would be it because um, I just don't think he's going to say very much more than what's in the report and it's not going to be enough. And, and I think there's a, an underlying point that is, is I think, a, a somewhat legal point and mainly a political one, which is when you go to, you know, when you go, when you want to do something as big as impeaching the president, you have to fight like it's the biggest thing in the world that matters. And the Republican Party and the you know, Republican appointees, including Barr, have been fighting an all-out war, and the Democrats haven't. And that's not – you can say that's because they're weak. I think it's because the Speaker hasn't wanted to have that fight. And you can't have a, you can't have a half-hearted fight and, and execute pincer moves, as important as they are, and hope to get the ultimate objective. Well, I think that they're running in place. I think that they're running in place. You're quite right, because until the poli- there's a political mobilization. And what you're saying, which is interesting, I'm not sure I'm with you, is that it's not likely to be a political mobilization if they continue in this very incremental way. But as I said, if they get their hands on Deutsche Bank records or Capital One records, who knows what will come out of that? I'll just add one quick point, which is that as sobering as Matt's assessment is for the possibility of just a national kind of judgment of the behavior of, of Trump, there's also the whole aspect of just finding out what went on. Their strategy has not only succeeded in insulating Trump to date, but also there's the real possibility that this is going to be left as almost a mystery for historians to try to piece together, that there's some basic things that we, in, in a huge national episode, that are really going to be fundamentally unknown. Time now for our sidebar feature, where we take a moment to explain some of the terms and relationships that you hear about in this podcast 
And today we're really honored to have Lawrence Summers on the program to explain which federal crimes the Department of Treasury investigates. Summers is the perfect person to do this because he served as secretary of the Treasury Department, the, the top official in charge, although that's just the beginning of his mind-boggling distinguished career. He has served as director of the White House National Economic Council, chief economist of the World Bank, and president of Harvard University, where he remains the Charles W. Eliot University professor. So Lawrence Summers will explain the role of the Department of Treasury relative to the Department of Justice. Which federal crimes does the Department of Treasury investigate? The Department of Treasury is charged with maintaining the wealth of the United States. This includes minting currency, making payments to contractors and the American public, collecting revenue, and borrowing funds necessary to run the federal government. It also investigates and develops civil and administrative cases related to its areas of responsibility. Should these investigations uncover willful misconduct, Treasury will refer the matter to the Department of Justice for investigation and potential prosecution with Treasury enforcement experts potentially assisting DOJ's efforts. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, manages and enforces anti-money laundering laws that require banks to record and report suspicious financial transactions. These laws are vital to the investigation and prosecution of money laundering, international smuggling, and terrorism cases. FinCEN's recording requirements preserve financial trail for investigators to follow as they track criminals and their assets. Many different criminal cases are first discovered by reports of suspicious financial transactions required by FinCEN's policies and regulations. The IRS Criminal Investigation, IRSCI, investigates tax and other financial crimes, including identity theft. IRSCI is the only federal agency that can investigate criminal violations of the Internal Revenue Code. This includes investigation of fraud related to the filing of tax returns and misreporting of legal income, fraud associated with failure to accurately report income from criminal activity, narcotics-related financial crimes, and financial and money laundering aspects of counterterrorism and espionage matters. The Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau Office of Field Operations conducts audits and investigations related to the industries and specialized tax laws it oversees. Several federal investigatory agencies that investigate financial crime used to be part of the Treasury as well. In the early 1800s, the U.S. attorneys were overseen by the Department of the Treasury. In 2003, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms was transferred from Treasury to the Department of Justice, and the U.S. Customs Service and Secret Service were transferred to the Department of Homeland Security. For Talking Feds, I'm Larry Summers. Thanks very much to Larry Summers for that explanation. Okay, um, we are now in the second half of June when the Supreme Court annually issues a flurry of its most difficult and consequential decisions. I think, by the way, that the Nixon case, another part of the timing there is that it was the very end of the term. So anyway, we thought for a little bit of a change of pace from the intractable and depressing White House Congress battle, we would look at one of them that actually does relate 
to the overall topic and fortunes of the president, and that is Gamble versus United States, which the court issued earlier this week. I think we need to take a few minutes to explain the double jeopardy concepts that were at play there, and we turn for that to as good an expert as you can have, which is Judge Gertner. Can you uh, give us the quick skinny on what, what was going on in Gamble? Okay, so Gamble started as a very small case. It was a guy who was stopped for a broken taillight, and when they stopped him, they found a gun. He is prosecuted in state court, as is typical. He pleads guilty, and then at that point, he's charged by the Alabama U.S. attorney for the same crime. This is something I saw rather regularly when I was on the bench because the federal government began to prosecute street crime and gun crime, and in doing that, began to be prosecuting the same people, oftentimes for the same offenses uh, as in state court. So the case goes up. He goes into federal court. He's convicted in federal court. He argues that essentially he's being prosecuted twice for the same crime, which offends the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution. You can't be prosecuted twice for the same offense. The government's answer, which had been an answer that the courts have raised for 70 years, is that it's not the same crime. The Alabama state charge is against one sovereign, namely Alabama state, and the federal one is against a different sovereign, the United States government. This case would not have attracted very much attention, but for the fact that it had implications for the parallel state and federal investigations of the president. And how so? How does that work exactly? What's, what shadow does it cast on, on the president? Well, the, the question is, if there's a federal indictment, let's say, in New York for, uh, for Manafort or for someone else, and the president pardons that person, the question then is whether a state prosecution could follow a federal pardon. So while as, whereas the president could sweep, you know, numbers of arguable confederates under the rug with pardons, the question is whether the state can go afterwards and prosecute the very same people for similar or the same crimes. Including, by the way, himself, potentially. He could, if he pardons himself with that. He could what, pardon himself. That That's right. So how, so what did the court say? The court affirmed, which in this court was sort of terrific, a uh, 70-year precedent that you know that you can't that that essentially the pro, the federal prosecution following a state prosecution is okay, and by implication, a state prosecution following a federal prosecution would also be okay. That these are crimes against two different sovereigns. the The fly in the ointment here is that individual states have more protections against double jeopardy than sometimes the Constitution requires. So in certain states, you may not have a state prosecution following a federal one, but that's, and New York actually is one of them, but that's that's a state-by-state issue. I think you said that, that this was great. Was it just that they actually affirmed a precedent rather than um, knocking it down, or do you do you agree with the decision? My answer is complicated. I was very troubled as a federal judge by the federalization of street crime right. and the extent to which uh, the Fed sort of took over in a, in a, with very dramatic penalties, as you know, uh, what had been essentially drug street crime. And although the federal government prosecutors have a policy against following a state prosecution with a federal one, that's a policy called a petty policy and not a bar, I was certainly troubled by this. 
So I'm troubled by the dual sovereignty thing, which seems like a contrivance. It does have a feel of double jeopardy. Paul, when you were U.S. attorney, did you do follow-up prosecutions after state? Only when we perceived that there was something unjust or or, or not great about the way the state well, prosecution came out, right? But, but 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 there was. I mean, there were cases in which you know there were particularly bad folks um, who we knew a lot about who had. Um, gotten a particularly light sentence in state court where we thought that they were particularly dangerous. We didn't do it that much. We did it occasionally. It was, it oh, was, after even a guilty was, verdict. I said very occasionally, but more often we, there were cases. That, look, the, the, the charge here in both cases in Alabama was that he, that he was a felon in possession of a weapon. That's really the – which violated both state and federal law. And I, I don't really know what the reason was that in this particular instance, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Alabama decided to pursue this case a second time. And in fact, what's interesting about Justice Alito's opinion for the majority, is he really doesn't talk about that all that much. There are some very interesting things, I think, about the Gamble opinion. I mean, first of all, Judge Gertner is right. The, when this, when the court took this case, people, the commentators like us, were all mm-hmm. agog for two different reasons. One was everybody was really focused on what the implications of the court's decision about double jeopardy would be for people like Manafort and maybe the president and whether the New York attorney general or the New York district attorney would bring cases in state court that were follow-on cases to the to the federal prosecutions and maybe try to um, prosecute the president that way for things that he couldn't get prosecuted for under federal law or that he pardoned other people for under federal law. That was one reason. The second was, is, you know, this particular doctrine of dual sovereigns, states and federal government having different interests and being effectively two different governments, has been around for 100 years. And so I think a lot of Supreme Court watchers were nervous about what this would portend for the court's respect of precedent, not necessarily on the issue of double jeopardy, but on things like Roe versus Wade. What I think this means for for that latter one is actually very for, for both things is interesting. First of all, it leaves intact the idea that you can, in fact, be prosecuted for something both federally and by the state. And it doesn't matter necessarily in which order, although there are states like New Jersey, where I mostly practice, and New York, where there's basically a state law bar, although, as, as Nancy just pointed out, New York is reconsidering that largely because of right. the current events that, we, that we're that we all observing and paying attention to involving the administration. But there are still 25 or 30 states where you can't do this um, if, you're the, if, the, if the state goes second. The the second thing, though, is is there was a very interesting debate that went on among the justices in the various opinions that were written in this case about this, the question of, of respective precedent, or as it's known to, to, in Latin, stare decisis, right? And, and Justice Alito said, look, for the majority, we, we believe that if we're going to overrule precedent, even in cases in which we are the final word as arbiters of the Constitution, there really needs to be a special justification. I think that was his term, special justification for us to do that. And I don't see that in this case, and neither did the rest of the, the rest of the, the six, the seven member Except majority. Except Ginsburg and well, Gorsuch, well, well, interestingly. Well, so well, so yeah. Thomas, who concurred, he agreed with the majority opinion and said, look, th- this case comes out correctly. Thomas said, yeah, the case comes out right. But I don't really like Justice Alito's formulation of, of stare decisis. For me, right. if we think it's wrong, it's wrong. And we don't need a special justification to, over, to, 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 to overrule precedent. Judge, uh, Judge Gors- Justice well, Gorsuch they- said exactly the same thing. He said, look, I, I would apply whether you say – whether you use a, Justice Alito's special justification formulation or you use the one from Justice Thomas, I'm overruling this. And, and I think that this is ridiculous and outrageous. Justice Ginsburg had sort of the most – interesting and innovative take on this. She basically said, look, 
whatever it was 225 years ago when the Fifth Amendment was enacted with this double jeopardy clause, we are now basically one country. And I just don't like the way this comes out. And so so she obviously agreed with the majority on, on, on that you need a special justification to overrule precedent. But interestingly, she found it in this case and says, we're just, things have changed. It's very interesting. There have been numbers of cases this term in which the last one was the Gundy decision this past week, which was about the sex offender registry and the, the authority of the attorney general to put people on the sex offender registry when the act was enacted after they were convicted. But the, the interesting thing is that there is a discussion by Alito, who's talking in majority, saying, I don't have a majority, essentially, to overrule this precedent about what the scope of the authority that can be delegated to the executive. And Gorsuch dissents and saying, you know, I think this would be, a, we should, this is precedent we should overturn. Kavanaugh had to be recused because he wasn't yet on the court at the time of oral argument. So there's a discussion among the conservative judges uh, clearly going on about which precedent to respect and which precedent not to right. respect. And what's really interesting— And that's a dangerous discussion. Yeah, and which, <laughs> it's a dangerous—but what's really interesting is that Justice Gorsuch and has, has staked out a position— that if you're trying to characterize this on the political spectrum of left and right or liberal conservative is clearly farther to the right on Justice Alito on these questions, which I think is probably going to be a surprise to some to some folks. And we'll have, well, the other interesting thing about Justice Alito's majority opinion is, as I said before, he didn't actually try to say, you know, this is really a great criminal justice policy and it really makes complete sense. Alab- they, he had to pay lip service to the notion that Alabama and the federal government have separate interests here. In, in convicting uh, Mr. Gamble. But the examples he used were actually ones from international law, which was, I thought, a stunning thing for, for, for this court because they've, there yeah, have right. been so many instances in, in which particularly the late Justice Scalia was so disdainful of looking to foreign law. But here, Justice Alito said, look, if an, for example, if an American gets killed overseas and gets prosecuted by whatever and the person who did it gets prosecuted by whatever country it is in which the crime was committed, that's fine. But we have a separate interest here in prosecuting that same case. That's undoubtedly true. And it's a particularly great justification for the dual sovereign notion. Um, and and to, to get there, I, to get to, 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 the, to, to that point, he has to also acknowledge that the state's that have their own separate interests, although Justice Ginsburg, I think, disagrees with that. But but what I, I was struck by the fact that he looked to to an example in which we and a foreign government might have overlapping interests at the same time that we're separate and distinct. Right. I mean, so the basic idea here is New York falling on the heels of the federal government or vice versa. I, I think of the Rodney King case that I worked on and people sometimes point to as a righteous prosecution is really no different from, say, uh, the federal government falling on the heels of, you know, Peru. And it's that kind of unreality, I think, that Ginsburg was reacting to. One more quick point about this um, battle over precedent. You're totally right. What Gorsuch and Thomas are essentially saying is when it comes to the Constitution, if we think that something's wrong, sort of 51-49, why shouldn't we overrule. It's not like a statute that Congress can uh, correct. So that's something that will be played out over the next terms in, you know, very, I think, dynamic and uh, contentious fashion. What about, so so Matt, what, what if anything does it actually portend for Trump and Manafort, et cetera? Is it really plausible that state charges against 
Trump or Manafort could proceed and when and how would it work? Is this actually something that should matter to them? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, look, with respect to Manafort, I think it, they've made clear they're already, already going to make a double jeopardy challenge under, under New York's law. They've, they've, his lawyers have signaled that from the beginning. And, you know, they are making, I think, as much a, a claim under New York law as they are a, a constitutional claim. Um, with respect to Trump, I mean, look, he hasn't, he, he's not got a double jeopardy problem right now because he's not been charged in federal court, partly because, uh, you know, I think he's the president of the United States. So I think we'd have to be looking at him uh, as a, a non-sitting president, as an ex-president who has been charged in federal court, uh, something that is, you know, hard to see, but not off the table, obviously, before you even got into a question of double jeopardy. Yeah. And boy, a state prosecution of even a prior president, I think, would have some constitutional, um, that would be a constitutional bramble bush, both in terms of the overall battle about precedent and and its portents for Trump, I think. This will be a really interesting case for um, the next couple terms. Yeah, there's, Paul, yeah, there's one interesting twist to the Manafort thing that I don't know if anybody's been paying attention to. He's in federal prison because he's serving a federal prison sentence in Pennsylvania at the, at the federal uh, institution called Loretto. He's now supposed to be tried in New York State, and ordinarily he would then be moved to Rikers Island, or uh, like ordinarily with that right, routinely, right? right. Oh, yeah. And and his lawyers wrote a letter, say basically to say he he shouldn't be moved for health reasons. And before the Justice Department did anything, the the deputy the new Deputy Attorney General Jeff Rosen wrote to Cy Vance, the Manhattan District Attorney, and said, "Give me a good reason why he should go to Rikers." And so that's an, uh, that's a, a slightly unusual thing for the federal government to do under those circumstances. And Vance basically said, fine, if you want to leave him in, in Pennsylvania, leave him in Pennsylvania. What that means, though, is every time he has to appear in New York in court, they're putting him on a bus um, with other prisoners, which will not be a pleasant experience for yeah, him. Yeah, although he's happy not to be at Rikers. Right. Somebody wrote a really uh, brilliant op-ed <laughs> about that, I think, a few days ago in the Washington Post. Who would that be? Harry, would, Harry, I, was, be Harry I was going to plug your piece for you if you'd just given me a second to jump in. <laughs> he, he, he's not that he's not. We've known him for a long time, Matt. He's yeah. not that patient. That's coming from me. <laughs> he, he who toots not, as Justice Marshall would say, he who toots not his own horn will find his horn untooted. Um, all right, it's time for our final segment, Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of the feds has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question comes from Ms. Fisher from Twitter, and it's a personal question for each of us. How much of your time do you spend reading about, tracking, researching, and discussing current cases or potential cases brought about solely by this president or his administration. Matt. As Willie Nelson would say, always on my mind. <laughs> Excellent. That's more than five oh, words. No, we now need a, food, uh, a song title. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Okay, uh, Paul. God, you know, there's, there's so many great country songs we could do. Yeah. I'm just going to go with the Eagles. It, there's going to be a heart. There's going to be a heartache tonight. Oh, uh, <laughs> no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Judge, you wore a robe. You don't have to. You don't have to have a song. I, I don't. I don't. I don't have a song. I think that it's a question of how obsessed I am, and the obsession ebbs and flows. That's. There may be a song that goes along with that, yeah. but I can't think of one. Well, we're, we're going to write one for you. Yeah, ex exactly. The obsession ends and flows. Ebbs and yeah. flows. Uh, oh, that's a good. But one more. Oh, cup of coffee. I'll do that. Yeah. Uh, but that's... No, that's the, no that won't work. Okay. Um, Forever in My Life 
by Prince. Thank you very much to Paul, Matt, and Judge Gertner, and thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts, and please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. But actually, please take a moment to think about the five words or fewer questions. We do the ones that come from you, and we want to replenish the supply regularly. So think about anything you'd like us to actually answer. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. This episode was recorded by Adeline Sire. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum, Transcripts by Cassandra Sunt. Special thanks to Lawrence Summers for his sidebar today on the Department of Treasury. And thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.